Good evening. We're going to go ahead and get started, if you don't care. And uh, hopefully you got the notes that were back there on the table. As we find ourselves in Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. If, if you were with us last week, we looked at the beginning uh, of this vision that we see here in chapter 4. And uh, what that looked like. And we talked about how... The Lord is the focus of that chapter, that He is the one that is to be uh, worshipped. And when we come into chapter 5, um, just like I said, we're going to focus on the main things. But as you remember last week, I gave you at the beginning of your notes, if you have those, uh, the different views of the rapture. Whether it's a pre-tribulation rapture, a mid-tribulation rapture, or a post-tribulation rapture. And you had those three views explained. And so when we come to chapter 5, depending on which of those views you hold to, when we study chapter 4 and 5, if you hold to the pre-tribulation view, the church is in heaven. If you hold to a mid-tribulation view, um, that will happen at uh, chapter 14. So the church goes through the, the first seals and those judgments, and then... Uh, before the Great Tribulation, or what would be considered the second three and a half years, that is where the rapture of the church would happen. And um, so, like I said, I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture, but those are the two common views and where those two fall. Uh, and so the difference would be, one, that both believe will avoid the great part of it, the second part of it, but yet there is disagreement on the first. Uh, there are two verses why I really think that it's all seven years, but yet you will hear others who will say, no, that's not the case. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul writing about things of the end times says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And then over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, talking about the day of the Lord, uh, and says in verse, uh, in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, though, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. And you can read those verses before that talking about the day of the Lord, etc. You can study those in Matthew chapter 24 uh, if you want to, to really dig into that and really kind of pour into where you fall on that spectrum. But like I said, that is not the focus of what we study. We study now the focus of the chapter in chapter 5. And uh, if you're taking notes tonight, as always, the, the answers to the only two fill-ins I have for you is when we look at these first seven verses, we need to be reminded that there is no one like Jesus. There is no one like Jesus. And we'll just read verses 1 through 7, and then we'll just jump right in. And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll 
or to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. If you would pray with me, and we'll look at this. Father, we thank you so much for your word this evening. We pray, Lord, for clarity, for humility, to know, Lord, that none of us has all the answers. Lord, that you truly are the source of truth. And we just pray tonight, Lord, that all that is said and done glorifies you. And, Lord, it brings honor and glory to your name in your name alone. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So John is writing to us this vision that he has been given, this experience of what is going on in heaven. And we looked in Revelations that he said, write the things that have been, the things that will be. And so uh, we're looking now at what the future will unfold. Uh, I think it's very important to know here in this chapter, look in verse 1, and I saw. Verse 2, I saw. Verse 6, I looked. If you were to flip on down, in, I think it's verse 11, it once again says, I look. He is trying to call your attention to the fact that he is an eyewitness to this. That it's not something that he has made up. That it is true. That it is factual. That it is going to be this way. And that's very important because if you've ever seen any kind of a court case or a legal argument, uh, that's what they want. They want first-hand accounts. What did you see? What was going on? And if you know anything about that, that's one thing they try to do, right, is discredit the witness. Well, you were coming outside of a tavern while you saw this crime being committed. Was there anything going on in your life at that time that would have impaired your judgment or your vision? And someone would be like, well, no. Well, why is this footage here? Someone carrying you out after too many alcoholic beverages. And the credibility of the witness is being called into question. And what John is trying to call our attention to the fact is, I saw this. I saw this. I looked upon this. I looked upon this. Because when you and I put our faith and trust in the Word of God, God wants us to know that it is trustworthy. Because what we're going to study in chapters 6 to 19 is a lot to handle. Chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, pretty straightforward, not a lot to just really blow our minds wide open. But what we continue to see, there is a lot. And so I just, once again, am so encouraged by the fact that God wants us to understand. He wants us to see. He wants us to know. He wants us to believe. Because when you think about Revelation, most of us think, I don't want to touch that because it's confusing, it's difficult, it's, it's hard, it, what's the point? But yet John is just reaffirming this, that, that it's, it's a beautiful picture of who God is and what He's doing and how He's in control and the plans and purposes that He has. There in verse 1 it says, And I saw in the right hand of Him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back 
sealed with seven seals. Your Bible might say book. Uh, what we know is in this day and time, it would have been a scroll. It would have been something that would have been rolled up and sealed. And you say, well, why is this important? Well, a couple things that we should know from the notes below there. Romans, in the day and time that this was written, would seal a will with seven seals. Jewish custom used seals for ownership and valuable documents. The scroll, we believe, is a focus on how the Lord owns and controls everything and what will be done to judge and take back possession. Now, when we say take back possession, we know that it doesn't mean that it's not His, but how He accomplishes His final purposes, all right? How He destroys His enemies, how He judges the world. And what we see from the Bible, other examples of this in regards to scrolls. In Jeremiah chapter 32, uh, as the nation of Israel was, um, the southern kingdom was worried about being destroyed and being back taken over. People were selling their property, right? Because the enemy's coming. What's it good to have the deed of a piece of property if you're a slave to another country? And so what we see here is that Jeremiah is told by the Lord to take this piece of property, to buy it, and listen to this in verses 8 through 11. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of prison, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Please buy my field that is in Anathoth, which is the country of Benjamin. For the right of inheritance is yours, and the redemption yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew this was the word of the Lord. So I bought the field from Hanamel, the son of my uncle, who was in Anathoth, and weighed out to him the money, 17 shekels of silver. And I signed the deed and sealed it, took witnesses and weighed the money on the scales. So I took the purchase deed, both that which was sealed according to the law and custom, and that which was open. Depending on who you read and study, when a seal uh, was put on a scroll of something that did not need to be changed, in that day and age, it was sealed up. And if you notice here, it's written on both sides. And so you would write a little bit and then you would seal. You would write a little bit more on the outside and you would seal it. So that in order to change the inside, you would have to break all of the seals. You couldn't just edit out something on the inside because there were little bits written on the outside. And so if you opened up this document and something on the outside had been changed, you know that it had been tampered with, that it had been altered. And so it gives us this idea of ownership. It gives us this idea that when we see uh, the seals being broken in the next chapter, that they are these signs of correction and judgment. And so it's just very important to focus in on this because in Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, the Bible says, Now when I looked, there was a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and the outside, and written on it were lamentations and mournings and woes. In Daniel chapter 12, I recommend highly reading all of chapter 12. If you want to really look at some of these things, talking about the three and a half years, the times plus two times plus a half. But in verses one through four, it says, 
At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never was since there was a nation. Even to that time and at that time, your people shall be delivered, every one who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise shall sign like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many a righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And so it talks about shutting up or sealing these words. And so what we see here is that whatever has been written, whatever God has planned, whatever God has purposed, that it is being fulfilled. And that's very important because in the world that we live in, it's easy to question and to doubt and to, to worry and to wonder. But yet we're seeing here that what is going on is a very significant thing. It is the, um, the fulfillment of everything that has happened in human history. The fact that finally things are going to be made right. All of the heartache and trouble and problems of this life. God is showing us that I have a plan to correct all of it. I have a plan that is going to correct and discipline. But there's a catch. If you know anything about this. Because in verses 2 and 4. Who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll? And we'll read 2 and 4 and then we'll stop for a minute. Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and to look at it. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. And so what we see is that it is a clear indication that there is no angel uh, there is no creature uh, in the heavens, on the earth, under the earth that has this power. There is no one that has the authority. And so it's a reminder to us, and it should humble us, right? That it's not a church, it's not a clergy, it's not a created being. Who is the answer to righting the wrongs of human history? Who is worthy to pour out judgment on the enemies of the Lord? It's setting this up. We read a little bit about this in the first three chapters when we kept being reminded of who Jesus is. If you remember in Revelation chapter 1 verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. He says, I've got them. No one else has them. You can read there in almost every one of those letters when the Lord is talking about He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. 
He who is holy. He who is true. You can go back to the corrupt church and says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and His feet like fine brass. The first three chapters have all been setting us up to who Jesus is. What He can do. Because here in this chapter we're going to see that without Him we would have nothing. Without Him... Sin and death and the grave would not be accomplished. And so thoughts, questions about verses uh, 1 through 4. Very straightforward, uh, just, just setting the scene for what comes next. Well, there are a lot of opinions on verse 4. But I don't think that it really is necessary to just chase rabbits. But when it talks about weeping, it talks about the disappointment of, um, of what the world has with no hope. I mean, when you think about the fact if there is no Jesus to right the wrongs of sin and death and the grave, the hopelessness. We, there is discussions here about, well, how is there tears by John if there are no tears in heaven? And then you get into the discussion about, well, in Revelation 21, the promise for that is. But all of those things are secondary, okay? So if you're one of those that say, well, I, I, I don't believe John could have cried or he didn't cry. He said he wept, all right? So whatever that looks like, it's not the focus, all right? So when you're reading the commentaries and it tries to take you down that road, don't worry about it, all right? But there's disappointment. There's brokenness. What is the answer to the problem? And then in verse 5, it says... But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And behold, and look, I behold, in the midst of the throne of the four living creatures, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Then he came and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. In verse 5, there are two messianic titles for Jesus. Uh, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And I'm not going to have you read this just for the sake of time. Because sometimes our Wednesday Bible studies go very long. But you'll read about that in Isaiah 49, verses 8 through 10. Talking about the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David is met, referenced in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. And Jesus even refers to himself in Revelation chapter 22, verse 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So we are seeing that Jesus is the fulfillment of of all of the messianic promises. He is the fulfillment of the Messiah. And we see then what that looks like. Because if you read there, and it talks about He has prevailed. He has prevailed to open the scroll. Well, what is it talking about? Well, if you go on in verse 6, you know it talks about the throne, which we looked at that last week. The four living creatures, we looked at that last week. The midst of the elders. But look at this beautiful picture. If you see from your notes there that lamb is used 28 times in the book of Revelation. 28 times. It is a key phrase 
a lamb as though it had been slain. And we know that, right? The New Testament teaches us that over and over again about this idea as the Lamb of God slain as the sacrifice that was necessary for our sins. John chapter 1, verse 29, the Baptist said this at his baptism. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So how did he prevail? By conquering sin and death and the grave through the death, burial, and resurrection. And so all that we believe revolves around this idea that Jesus came, took the punishment for sin, was on the cross taking the wrath of God, died but yet triumphed over sin and death. That's why I quoted from Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. He has the keys. He is the one that's worthy. He is the one that is overcome. Now you get into the seven horns and the seven eyes, and there's a lot of different thoughts, but just knowing what the Bible says about animals and what we know about animals themselves, that horns have two purposes on an animal. One, it's defense, right? You can defend yourself against an attacking animal. Or two, you can use those in a fight to wound an animal if you have horns, depending on the type of horns. And so it could be one that he is going to destroy his enemies. He is defending his people. And the second part of that is the seven eyes in the scriptures. We know that it's about understanding and knowledge. So what I think is it shows us the omnipotence and the omniscience of who Jesus is, that he's all powerful and that he is all knowing. So he knows all and he is all powerful because of who he is and what he's done. And because he's all knowing, all powerful, he's overcome sin, death, and the grave, he is worthy to take the scroll. He is worthy to begin the process of breaking the seals, to pouring out the judgment on the world. Questions? Uh, discussion? Oh, well, you would see that in, I think, Zechariah 4, maybe, verse 2, I think. I know you see it in Revelations 1, verse 4. Uh, Revelations 1, verse 4, we see it. Uh, John to the seven churches, which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is on, who is and who was and is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. And when we studied that, we talked about how seven is the number of completion, perfection. And so I think a really conservative, safe bet is to view that as the Holy Spirit. Uh, there are lots of other opinions, but I think that um, looking at that as the Holy Spirit, uh, when we see it here in uh, Revelation 4, verse 5, from your notes again. But when you see it in verse 5, it says having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. Well, there are a couple ways to view that if you look at what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. First, uh, John chapter 16 is a wonderful chapter on the Holy Spirit. But if you look at John chapter 16 and you tie it into what we're studying here, the judgment of God 
on the world. In John chapter 16, starting in verse 7 through 11, it says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. So we love that. It's a wonderful encouragement. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And so we see how the Holy Spirit is at work in the world today. Of sin, because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And so it's a chapter on encouragement for us, but also a reminder that the enemy, Satan, is judged. And that those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, who die in their sins and trespasses, will be judged. And so when we tie it back in here to Revelation 5, verses 6, why was the Spirit sent into all the earth? Well, to deal with the earth, to deal with the wicked, to know who they are and where judgment is to be poured out. Because the Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And so I think the seven spirits is very is faithful to the work of the Holy Spirit and how He works in the world today, that, that is a very uh, conservative uh, position. Now, some Bible commentators would say, well, no, the seven spirits can represent uh, different creatures or different purposes, but I, just, I really think that's a struggle because it just leads you into so many difficult places where completion, perfection, the Holy Spirit, I think that's a very... A very defendable biblical position. Yeah. Galatians five twenty two. I can get my fingers to work. Worst part about getting fat is fat fingers. Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah, Galatians 5, the first half talks yeah. about the... the There's seven and then 23, though. <laughs> and then 23, gotcha. Like I said, was Could it be a completion? The work, yeah. Yeah. But yes, we know the fruit of the Spirit there. But I think that... In the context of what we're looking at it is, it's, it's, it's the judgment, right? Chapter 5 is judgment. Uh, chapter 6 is judgment. And this unfolding, I think it is important to know how the Holy Spirit works in that judgment. And first, or in John chapter 16 is a beautiful picture for us, a terrible picture for them of what the Holy Spirit is doing and working in this present age. Questions, thoughts, comments? All right. You're awful quiet tonight. Jesus is the only one worthy. Jesus is the only one worthy. So we've looked at him coming, taking the scroll, and now what happens? In verse 8, Now when he had taken the scroll, 
the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lord, each having a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And we'll just stop right there. So we've already looked at the four creatures. We've already looked at the 24 elders. And so when this happens, they begin to worship. And the question is, why? Why? Because when Jesus puts himself in the place of judgment, he judges perfectly. And because of that, the people of God can rejoice. We know that we should not rejoice in the death of the wicked because the Bible says that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But on the other side of that, when the Lord decides that it's time to take every wrong and make it right, to take every enemy and make them defeated, it's a time of rejoicing. It's a time of recognizing that Jesus is who the Bible says he is, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, there are some different distances of agreement here on the harp. The Bible is full of examples of the harp being used in worship. I think there's 40 sometimes in the Old Testament work talks about the harp as an instrument of worship. So the people are worshiping. The people are declaring. There are also a few times in the Old Testament, and you can find those on your own, where it talks about prophetic word. Grab the heart as I prophesy. And so some people say it's not only a time of worship, but it's just a reminder that this is going to happen. What it's going to be like around the throne of heaven. The worship of the Lord. The more difficult one is the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. I have right there in Psalm 141 verse 2, Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. If you read through the Old Testament about the high priest, if you read about um, when John the Baptist's parents found out that he was going to, uh, they were going to have a child and his, his father was, was offering uh, the sacrifices, he was offering that and the people outside were praying. And so we see here a couple different opinions. One, if you hold to a pre-tribulation view of the rapture, this is the church celebrating the fact that all of their prayers, all of their requests are before the Lord. We know that they're there. He's working and acting upon them. Uh, if you hold to a mid-tribulation view, this is for all of those prayers who have been made for those who are getting ready to experience the tribulation. And it doesn't really matter either way. But what we see here is the importance of the prayers of God's people to Him. Now, so many times we think about prayer. We think about asking God for things that, that we're rejoicing over prayer being answered. But the Lord takes delight in the prayer of His people. The Lord takes delight in the prayer of His people. This idea for incense is something that's pleasing, that's something that's sacred, that's something that's worshipful. And you say, well, Jake, if you heard my prayers, you wouldn't think they're anything special. Well, that is because you're not the one that makes them special. It is Him who sits at the right hand of the Father making 
intercession for you. Uh, one Bible commentator makes says this is so special uh, if you hold to a pre-tribulation view of the rapture because there, at this point the Lord is stepping up from his seat of intercession and is taking on the role of dispenser. He is going to dispense judgment. He's going to dispense uh, what is going on with this wrath. And so wherever you fall on that, I think it's just very important to look here in this verse about the prayers of the saints and what that means. But this would have been very familiar for the Jewish person because it would have referred to the, the Old Testament temple, the Old Testament rituals. Um, but as MacArthur says, if you have his commentary, these prayers could be specific to those who have prayed for this event. Now, we don't know that for sure. We don't know if it's the prayers of all of his people. But what we do see is that it's offered to him in a way that is worshipful, that is honoring, and once again reminds us about how the Lord loves us, how the Lord cares about us. Yes? Uh, well, you know, I've seen it on TV and stuff, but like when the Catholics, they do that. Uh, the golden thing that swings and smokes? Yeah, I don't have any idea. Yeah, I, I was just wondering if that's what they're doing. <laughs> well, I don't know what. I, I wish I could answer that, but I cannot. Well, it is, it is, it is, but I have no idea what the Catholic Church is doing, unfortunately. Yeah, but no, there definitely is a lot of that in that, and um, and I'm sure there is a heart behind that of why. I just, I just, sorry, I will look that up though. Anybody raised Catholic that want to speak to what the golden thing is and smoke? I'll look that up though, because I want. It is? Which, uh, do you have a specific place where we could reference that? Or exactly where, which part of the temple worship it was? Or I can't think off the top of my head. I know, Exodus. But why the Catholic Church does it, I, I will look up and find out. Other questions? But like I said, this, this idea, the priest, if you have the MacArthur Study Bible, it says, priest stood twice daily before the inner veil of the temple and burned incense so that the smoke would carry into the Holy of Holies and to be swept into the nostrils or presence of the Lord. So with the idea of our prayers rising to Him. So... Either way, wherever the details are, it should encourage us. It should remind us that the Lord wants to hear from us. That the Lord does love His people and their request. Any other questions? Thoughts? Well, what we see in verses 9 through the end of this chapter is the song of their worship. And it's, it's really, I think, very straightforward. It's just a, uh, it's a beautiful picture of what this is looking like. And they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll. Worthy. I, I like to underline things. And to open its seals. And what makes Him worthy? Well, we just talked about a lot of it. For you were slain. 
and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. So it's talking about the fact that Jesus died, was buried, rose again, and has brought us into the family of God. It goes on and says, And has made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on earth. Now, when we stop here, we know the Bible teaches us that we are a royal priesthood, uh, that we have been brought into His family. That's why uh, if you hold to a Protestant view of that, that you are a saint brought into the family of God. You do not have to have a church decry you as one, but we become a royal priesthood into the family of God. And there on the second part of night, and we shall reign on the earth. I think that is interesting because we look at that and say, well, what does that mean? Well, it could mean like, like I think a strong interpretation is that when Christ reigns for a thousand years in the millennial kingdom, that we will serve and reign along with him. Not in the same sense. We're not little gods like uh, certain cults believe. Uh, we, as the children of God, are the family of God. The kingdom that he's building is made up of us, right? The people of God. I think that is uh, a very strong uh, view for that. But, you know, there's a lot of disagreements. So, questions, thoughts about that? During that thousand year reign, King David himself. And how will. He's under Jesus. Right. But, yeah. Hmm. I don't guess I've ever really thought about that. Um, where would you like look in the Old Testament to support that? I mean, any specific verses? Any. <clears throat> look that one up too. Yeah. Exodus 31. Exodus 31. Exodus 31. Man, you guys have got it made with these phones out there. I'm trying to remember all these books of the. <laughs> Exodus 31, what? 8 through 11. Yeah, the table and its utensils, the pure gold lampstand with its all its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offerings, which all its utensils and the layer and its base, the garments of ministry, the holy garments of Aaron the priest and the garments of his sons to minister as priests and the anointing oil and the sweet incense for the holy place according to all that I have commanded you to do. So we see this picture. It's in the Old Testament. We see it explained. Uh, again, here in the throne room of heaven. <laughs> Other questions, comments. That, that is sense too. I, and I can't find this, but there, there was a place where there were perfumers that made this incense, and the incense was it was sanctified only for the tabernacle temple. Hmm. On your own. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I, I believe that's also in Leviticus as well. But then in, in uh, when I was mentioning Exodus 30. Exodus 30. Hold on, let me uh, pull that up. Huh? Verse 9. It also gives a warning about we should, we should offer no incense, nor burn 
sacrifice. And that was kind of along the lines of where Aaron's sons mm -hmm. were destroyed. Exodus 30, what was that again? Verse 9. I mean, there's all, it's, it's talking about yeah. Yeah, you jump up to verse 7. Aaron shall burn on it sweet incense every morning. When he tends the lamps, he shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it and perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer strange incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering, nor shall you pour a drink offering on it. And Aaron shall make atonement upon its horns once a year with the blood of the sin of offering of atonement. Once a year shall he make atonement upon it throughout your generation. It is most holy to the Lord. And so this is not just a made up concept that John has has pulled out of himself, right? He's he's calling us back to the Old Testament as well to see, as we know, the Old Testament is uh, all of the uh, sacrifice, all of the instruments are, are just, uh, uh, <laughs> the word I'm looking for here, uh, foreshadowing of New Testament, right? Of who Christ is and what Christ does, and even in regards to the veil. And, and um, so it's just a beautiful picture here of calling us to who Jesus is and what he can do and what he is going to do. So when did the Baptist 86 the incense? Hmm? Huh? So when did the Baptist 86 the incense? When did Baptist 86? I have no idea. I have no idea, but be careful because there's a whole lot of people wanting to do incense now, but it's a different kind, and I don't want any of that. You know. <laughs> I'm saying that in jest. I know. Yeah, hopefully everybody knows I am too, right? I, I mean, so, yeah. So look, in verse 11, we're called again to, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne. The living creatures and the elders and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands it's a multitude it's a it's an uncountable number saying with a loud voice now i want you to see in verse 9 the beginning of the elders and the saints was what you are worthy beginning here in verse 12 the song starts with Worthy is the Lamb. So worthy is the Lamb, this theme that keeps appearing to us, who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. It talks about who He is and what He did. And when we celebrate who Christ is, we must never forget that while the crucifixion was bloody, it was brutal, it was vicious, uh, it was necessary. It was required that this could take place. Because it continues to say, not just worthy is the Lamb, but worthy is the Lamb who was. Who was. And so, go ahead. Oh, no, sorry. I don't know. Maybe I asked a question. I didn't know it. And so we just see this beautiful picture of reminding us who he is and what he does. I think it's interesting, though, because when you think about judgment and you think about destruction and you think about power, what is the one animal that comes to your mind? I'm sure it's a lamb, right? A lion, right? We saw the lion of Judah. 
But the, the lamb is not the, it's not the animal that comes to your mind, right? It's not vicious. It's not on the animal planet chasing down other animals. But yet it continues to refer to worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb. And I just think that is so significant for us as we worship him. And we know that he is all powerful, that he is all knowing, that he is all the powers, all the riches, all the wisdom, all the strength, all the honor, all the glory and all the blessing. But to the world, the lamb is helpless, defenseless, almost useless in a a conquering setting, right? You can't ride it into battle. I guess you could, but that would be extremely awkward, right? You think of riding a horse or you, you know, you think of riding something like that. You think of, but yet here it is. But yet we see what the world thinks is invaluable. Wait, no, I need to make sure they say this right. It's not valuable. Let's just go ahead and, you know, what we see is it is all the value. And that's like the Bible teaches, right? It's foolishness. The, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The gospel is foolishness to a world that prides itself on power and money and intelligence. But yet if you want to come to Christ, you have to humble yourself. Right? The faith like a child. If you want to be the greatest in the kingdom, you have to be. If you want to be first, you have to be. You know, you get to heaven, you ask the two brothers who are fighting over who can sit on the right or left hand, right? And their mother, ask them how that works out. But it's just a beautiful picture of Christ coming in his humility. Christ coming born in a manger. Christ coming not to be served, but to serve. But yet, now we're looking at this same individual. Because you think it could re reference it differently, right? The lion who conquered, the root, all these things. But yet it continues to reference the lamb. The lamb that was slaughtered. The lamb that was slain. The lamb that was sacrificed. Because it's calling our attention back to that. Because in churches, no matter what kind of church they are, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, Catholic, if you and I are not careful, the focus always drifts from the most important things, right? What's the old saying? Take your hands off the wheel of uh, a government or an economy. It does not become more conservative, right? It always becomes more liberal. And the same thing is in a church. If we are not constantly focusing back on him, we will constantly be drug into so many other things. Good things, important things. But who he is, is the thing that matters the most. Because, and I'll just read these last couple and then I'll get you out early unless there's complaints. And that could be the case. And, con and every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth, such as are in the sea and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power to be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb once again forever and ever. Then the four living creatures said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped Him who lives forever and ever. And so, everything that is going to happen is because of Jesus. 
Everything we disagree about, everything we're going to study, everything we're going to focus on, whether it's the seals in chapter 6, and you can look at those, uh, whether it's the sealed of Israel in chapter 7, uh, the multitude from the great tribulation, all of it, the trumpets as we go through, the witnesses. Once again, it's all about the Lamb who was slain. And I am not the most intelligent person in the world. Um, when I went back to get my doctorate degree, one of my seminary professors said, Jake, do you remember how much you hated getting your master's degree? Are you sure that you want to do this? And I said, nope, you're right. Before I waste my money and time, I do not want any part of this. But what I do want to be reminded of as I teach the Word of God, as you learn the Word of God, as you teach it in your appropriate context, is you don't have to know everything but you better know who the Lamb of God is. And you better know what He did for sinners, taking our place and taking our punishment. And so I think it's just an encouraging chapter, um, encouraging verses, and that's all I got. So next week, like I said, chapter 6, we will start to look at the seals. I encourage you this week to look ahead to view what you view about these seals and what you view about uh, different things. Because, um, uh, for instance, um, I'm going to try to find that in chapter... Eh, we'll look at it next time. So, but questions, comments... So the couple of questions that I have is looking at the golden incense of the Catholic Church, the verses about David. Any other questions that we can look up and come back to next week? Absolutely. Um, I wanted to I wanted to look at that. It, it, it refers again, though. I think we have to look back to it as a a a correlation to what it said there in verse. Uh, what was it? Verse two, when it looks at who is worthy, right? It was heaven, earth below the earth, right? It's that same idea of everything. No one was worthy to open it, and no one can avoid worshiping and recognizing who He is. Right? And so that is what we see in the Bible. It says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So I think the key there is to view both of those together as there's no one else 
and it's only him. And those two things together are a beautiful picture of who he is. So. At the beginning, you talked about the uh, pre-trib, mid-trib, and post-trib. Mm -hmm. I'm also a pre-tribber. And you get into those seals, even the beginning of the seals, you don't want no part of that. You're, you're, you're right. You're right. Um, I have, I've tried to study all three positions a lot here lately, not because I want to, but just because I think it's important to know what you believe and why. Um, and the, a lot of the struggle comes with, so you will see some people that will like to go to, to Matthew 24, and they, they tie in verses um, all the way up until chapter... 14. And so, for instance, that the, the gospel is preached to the whole world, that that doesn't happen until the 144,000 evangelists who are Jewish preach to the whole world. Um, and so, uh, so the mid-trib position is, is usually, if you look at it, and I've actually got it printed up here from what I was studying, I took pictures of it today, uh, puts the rapture uh, at like verses 1 through 16 of chapter 14, before the great tribulation. So, um, but yes, I, I, don't, I want no part of them, but I do want the Bible's position to be supported. And so, you know, I, I think that you, you read and study a lot, and like I said, you come to the decision. But yes. But yeah, it, so if you, if you study that position, you look all the way to Revelation 14 is where the rapture would happen. So... Well, you know, as, as you, know, you were mentioning the Thessalonian verses, don't have to rapture me out. I trust God to keep me from this wrath. Huh? I don't need to be raptured out because I trust God to keep me from this wrath. Mm -hmm. If I'm his child, I won't have to worry about that wrath. Yeah. The, same way, the same way in Egypt during the Exodus, the Egyptians were getting throttled, the Israelites were, were protected. Mm -hmm. As long as they followed what they were supposed to mm -hmm. do. Yeah, but, but I think the struggle with that, though, is, though, there isn't a specific instruction in Revelation to put blood over the doorpost as well, like the, the children. The doorpost has been done by the land the Absolutely, so. absolutely. But we also know, though, that while it saved them physically in the Old Testament, just because we are a believer in the New Testament doesn't mean our life, no, earthly life, will be spared. Trust God absolutely. Me, so whether, yeah. Whether I'm, I'm pre-post. Whenever it doesn't yeah. matter. Yeah. In God I trust. Any other thoughts? So we will begin walking through the seals next week. And um, uh, I don't know how many we'll get to. We might get to two or three of them. We might get to all of them. But we will walk through them together. And if you have any questions, please let me know. As you have heard me say numerous times in this Bible study, it could be, might be, this is what it says. Um, you will hear that much more from me before this is over. Um, and that's okay. So you're saying, well, Jake, how are you ever going to be like David Jeremiah? I am not. All right. <laughs> I am not. That is an amazing, amazing man. So 
If you read it, you listen to me and go, Jake, I don't think I understand what you're talking about. Go listen to him. He does. <laughs> I thought about just putting him on the TV, but I thought, well, you know, it might be a little cheating. But John MacArthur also does a very good job teaching through the book of Revelation. If you like uh, to hear in depth, uh, for every one scripture reference I make, he'll make 17 almost. So uh, it's a wonderful study to do on your own time and in your own home. But we would never get through the book of Revelation if we went through at his pace. So, huh? Oh, sheesh. I thought the book of Jeremiah was the hardest thing I'd ever teach through. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. So, anything else before we do prayer requests and close?